And our passage for the day is from Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. And it tells the story of Abram, Sarah, and Hagar. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they For multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she, said, for she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. This is God's word for us today. I'm going to start my sermon a little differently this time. I want to invite up Perlene Cooper to share a story of a time when God had um, protected her by his power. Perlene has been, is a pastor She was a pastor in Madagascar for many years, and now she pastors the Malagasy community here in the U.S. And so, Perlene? Good morning. Small girl, because in that time I was so young, twenty-one years old. 
union we'll have in Bastogne for five years. And then, boy, <laughs> can, can tell you. But they still follow the ancestral uh, worship. They, they are in the church, but following something else. But when I came there, I explained, I teach them to know God don't want people to do two things, only serve one God. If you do that, the Lord not follow you. And one of the elders who is uh, the treasurer of a church is so angry with me. And uh, he never come to the church. And uh, he didn't pay my salary three months. So thinking if uh, after three months we didn't pay, she might be gone. I didn't go. I still stay. I challenged him, and the Lord helped me. And then what he planned, we went to his house to visit him with uh, some the deacon, and uh, the people told me, if you are in his house and they gave you something different from us, don't eat it. Because those people is not really a good people. Then when we arrived there, uh, they cook cassava. This is the cassava. Cassava root. Maybe none of you might be known it. We can see this in uh, Price Chopper. This is from uh, uh, Puerto Rico. And uh, this cassava, they can cut in small pieces and cook it and eat it like a, the bread. They can serve with uh, tea or coffee. And then they serve us the cassava and uh, everyone have coffee and tea. Only me have a nice big uh, glass a cup of milk. And the lady, Deacon, told me, if they gave you that, don't drink it. Then what I said, I don't know, in my mind. Then I, I said, let's pray. And then when I prayed, in my mind, I asked, Lord, I don't know what to do, Lord. Help me. When you finish praying, everyone is surprised. The glass of milk is split by a cat. You see in the picture. And the cat drank the milk. After that, he's so angry and took the cat and put in the floor. But later on, the cat turned, turned around and died in the evening. If I drink the milk, I will die. And that the way God see me, help me, and protect me. He is a living God, like our uh, song, the miracle worker. And you always see. Can you read together these verses? Oh. And then, thank you. And he will be doing the same thing to you because it's never changed. Amen.
Perlian, thank you for that testimony um, of God's power and how he watches over us. And um, we are in a series. I started it last week. If you did not perchance uh, get a chance to listen to that sermon, I'd encourage you to, to hear it. It's, I'm going to kind of follow a little bit of a progression as I go through this. But the overall question we're asking is, what is God's design for women and men? In the midst of this, we're going to talk about marriage and singleness and, and different roles. And how should we be thinking about this? This is an area in our society where I think there's a lot of confusion. And sometimes the church has not always spoken well to it. It was in college when I learned that the, the, the role of women in the church was a problematic issue for some, and that, that it was a, a, a thing that churches had different views on. I, I, was, I came to know Christ through Young Life, which is a parachurch ministry, and men and women together would often be both leaders in that, that ministry. Um, but I had a college roommate who came from a pretty very conservative church, and they, he talked about how the women were not allowed to, to teach or speak from the pulpit. And, uh, they, but they, had, they decided that women could give announcements. And so in his church, he was telling about how you know, the women would give announcements, but one of the older men didn't approve of that. So he, my friend told me how he would just turn off his hearing aid when the woman was given the announcements. And my friend thought that was great. That was funny. I was appalled because you're going to miss the announcements, right? Like that's a, you know, that, but even more than that, the, so that my first thought was, it's just not practical. You miss the announcement. But the second thought was, that's kind of rude. Even to the point of being mean spirit, is that how the scriptures tell us to treat our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith? And, and the irony is, I assume that man would have been committed to the Bible, the scriptures. And the irony is that if you read through the Bible, um, it tells the stories of, of women and the problems they face, especially when you compare it to the ancient literature of, of that time where the women were just stock characters or, or minor. But in, in the, the scriptures, you, you get... You, it digs into the story of women, like Rachel and Leah and their little battle to who, who can have the most kids. Or you, you find out Miriam, the prophetess, and, and her story. You learn about Deborah, who serves and rules even as a judge in a, in a tumultuous time. You learn about Rahab, the prostitute, who becomes part of the line of the Messiah. You, you, you have entire books that tell the story of women, such as the book of Ruth. It talks about Ruth and Naomi. And then... You have Esther, who, who becomes the savior of her people in, the, in a time of the Persian Empire. And then you can even look, there are places where, such as Proverbs 31, where the, the woman gives instructions as part of God's authoritative word. So, such as the, the mother of Lemuel in Proverbs 31, you know, he is instructed, and we are instructed in authoritative scripture by a woman. So, so when you think about the Bible, it, 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 it actually speaks to these issues. The question I, I want us to kind of work with today, 
is does God take note of the plight of women? Women, And here's one of my basic contentions. When you read the Bible and the things, the Bible often describes the difficult situations, even the mistreatment of women in its cases. And, and sometimes you, it can even be very hard to read places in the scriptures of how, how things are, the evil that's described there. But it does not endorse such mistreatment. So we're going to look at Hagar and, and answer that question. Does God take note of the plight of women? Hagar was the Egyptian handmaiden to Sarai. So Sarai later gets named Sarah. So if I say Sarah or Sarai, Abram later gets renamed Abraham. So just to hopefully avoid any confusion there. So as part of the household of Abraham, the positive thing is that she is included in God's chosen people. God had chosen Abraham to be the, the one through whom he would bring redemption for all of humanity. That, that, that promise had already been issued. So, so Sarah, or Hagar is then included in that, but the challenge being within the family of God, the a household, she had three strikes against her, against her. So she was a woman. Secondly, she was a foreigner an Egyptian amongst the Hebrews. And thirdly, she was a servant, or you could even say she was a slave. So she was low on the totem pole within this, this family. And the, the issue that comes to be is that Sarai is barren. She realizes they are now of great age, very elderly, and they have not had any children yet. They're beyond hope that yet God had promised that they would have children and, and bear a, a, a nation who would be God's people. And so Sarai decides to do something. And that is give Hagar to Abraham to bear a child. Now, if you look at the laws of that area, that was permissible. That this, the code of Hammurabi actually speaks to this very thing that a woman can serve as a surrogate. A servant could serve as a surrogate and the child would belong to the, the, the mistress. Um, Abraham agrees to this situation. We don't know if Hagar agreed to it or not. She seems to not have a say in the matter. Um, but within the story, then, she becomes like a second wife, which there goes against God's plan. God said there would be a man and a woman, uh, that, that having multiple wives is already moving against God's plan and what he had designed for people. Um, but we see this described, not affirmed in the Bible, the beginning of polygamy. She gets pregnant, and when that happens... The attitude towards her mistress changes. She now sees herself as a second wife to Abram. Right? She sees herself as in higher status. And she begins to look with contempt upon um, Sarai, who had not had children. She was going to bear an heir to Abram, the, the much sought-after uh, son and so her attitude changes, her behavior changes, and Sarah is fuming. 
and she, she, she comes to Abraham, and you can imagine her, her, the way she's saying this, right? She says, and Sarah, I said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with content. That's probably how she said it. It says, may the Lord judge between you and her. Now, if I were in the situation of Abram, I might say, whose idea was this arrangement again? Abraham is far wiser than I would be, though. He simply says, whatever you say, dearest. Well, not quite, but that's effectively what he says. He affirms Sarai as his rightful wife. He affirms her in her position and her status. She is the one true wife, not Hagar. And so he consigns Hagar to her authority. She is your servant. You deal with this however you see fit. Alas for poor Hagar. Because Sarai does not treat her well. Um, she's blamed, beaten, mistreated, maybe even denied basic needs. Who but knows what's going through Sarai's mind if she's thinking maybe, maybe if I treat her a certain way, the baby won't even be born. Or she just, just wants to make sure she's under her thumb. Um, maybe she's just acting out of anger. But it gets bad enough that Hagar flees into the desert wilderness. Now, this is not like, you know, well, I'll just go to another town or I'll just go somewhere else. This is, for a, a woman or really even any person, this could really be a death sentence. To, 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 to leave the community and go try to make life where there's, there's barely any food, nothing growing, it is not a good or safe situation for anyone, let alone a heavy pregnant woman. But it is in the desert that the Lord meets her. God shows up, the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper. He shows up in the form of an angel. It's called the angel of the Lord. But every time the angel of the Lord shows up, it is God's presence. It's not just a mere servant of God. And God speaks, and he does something really interesting in, in how he approaches Hagar. Keep in mind, Hagar is a foreigner. Um, she's a, been a part of Abraham's ho- household. We don't know how much she has learned about the God of Israel. Right? She, she grew up with the many gods of the Egyptians. But he shows up, and he says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? Do you see what God's doing? He comes with a question, not a command or a statement. And he's inviting her to tell her story. Where have you come from? God knows, of course. But he's inviting her, what's what's going on in your life? What has brought you to this place? How much difference does it make when someone knows your story. I mean, we all go through hard things and hospital visits or you, you name it. And isn't there something healing about being able to tell someone that story? Here's what, what happened. And to have someone really and truly listen. 
And that's what happens. God is not going to magically fix her problem in this, this, this story. In fact, he'll send her back to the situation. So he first asks, where, are you, where have you come from? And then he says, where are you going? What's your plan? What's your direction? This encounter would change Hagar. It would change her attitude with which she's facing everything. Um, I, think he, he, I think by sending her back, he knows he's sending her back with a different attitude, which might change then how Sarai is treating her. Um, but what really changes things is Hagar now knows there's a God who cares about me. You are the God who sees me. God gives her hope. He says, yes, you'll have a son, and your son will, will prosper, and, and I have a plan for his future. In fact, he will give birth to a whole nother nation, and that's what will happen. Ishmael, will uh, the Arabs claim him as their ancestor. So Ishmael would be the, the ancestor to the Arabs. But, but for Hagar, it's you are the God who sees me. No one saw Hagar or took notice of her, but God did. It's not the end of the story for Hagar. In fact, 13 years later, miracle of miracles, the way maker, miracle worker, would give to Sarai a child after all. And they would have Isaac and then Hagar and Ishmael would no longer be needed. In fact, they would no longer be wanted around. They would distract from the one who was to bear the promises given by God. And so they would be sent off. And Hagar once again would find herself in the desert, desperate, dying. She can't even stand to hear the cries of her son any longer because he's, he's dying of hunger and thirst. And she just calls out to God. Maybe she remembers the God who spoke to her 13 years prior. And once again, that God shows up. Leads her to a place of safety. A place where she can uh, meet her immediate needs. And moreover, speaks of that promise. Of her son who will, who will become the father of a nation. So, looking at the story. The first point I... I that I really want you to come through is that though, though the men in her life, the men did not see her, the God of the universe did. God treated her like a person, not like a foreigner, not like a slave, not like a woman. God treated her as a person. The second point, and this, I want to dwell on this a bit is that even a basically good religious man like Abraham took no notice or concern for Hagar. Abraham was following the laws that were given, the, the Hammurabi's code, where it says that a childless wife might give her husband a maid who was no wife to bear him children who were reckoned her. So he, he was influenced by the culture around Abraham is not a bad man. In fact, God says, by, because of his faith, he declares him to be righteous. He will be the father of the Israelites. And we, we as Christians are, are considered heirs with Abraham. Um, but Abraham still had a blind spot. Right? 
he treated Hagar as a usable object, not as a person made in the image of God. Men, how do we view the women around us? I want you to punctuate the sentence. So the sentence is this. A woman without her man is nothing. Where, should there be any punction, maybe some commas in there that would help us do this? Uh, um, so maybe this. A woman, comma, without her man, comma, is nothing. College professor gave this assignment to her, her students. And she said most of the, the, the young men punctuated it this way. A woman without her man is nothing. Most of the young women punctuated it this way. A woman, colon, without her, comma, man is nothing. Right? Beware that we can have blind spots in our thinking, and we are more influenced by our culture than we realize, and by the, the, the things that are all around us and the society we live in. I'm going to later going to talk about the Hellenistic culture and their views of women. I want to jump ahead to St. Augustine, who was one of the great Christian philosopher, teachers, theologians. The Christian faith would not be the same without him. Maybe you had to read his book, uh, Confessions by St. Augustine in, in college or something. Uh, so it's a great book. He's a great theologian. Augustine picked up the cultural message of his day. And this is what he said. I think he had a blind spot. Augustine wrote, What is the difference, whether it is in a wife or a mother, it is still Eve the temptress that we must beware of in any woman. I fail to see what use woman can be to man if one excludes the function of bearing children. Just to be clear, I didn't write this. <laughs> I'll share some other quotes that are even worse later. But, uh, but, but do you see, this is, this is a man who's, who's a man of God, a Christian man. Nevertheless, he took his views from the culture around him. And, and what's it? What use of woman is to man? The, the pattern throughout history, including our day, the pattern of this world is for men to view women as objects for their use. Now, sometimes, in some eras, that has been to bear them children and heirs. Think Henry VIII. Women, would you want to be married to the king, King Henry VIII? Well, if you didn't produce an heir, what happens? Right, yeah. But in our era, we view women according to their attractiveness. We base it, um, think about how Facebook started. I know they did that movie, the, the Social Network or something. You learned how Facebook got started. It started by they uh, aimed at college kids, and they put up two pictures of, of young college women, right? And, and the question was, which one's hottest? And then they took that one and measured it against someone else. And it was all about, like, measuring how attractive, how hot 
um, how sexual, sexualized uh, is, is this. And, and that's, they built an entire billion, trillion dollar company based on that mode. We are trained to think that way within our society and culture. We live, I call it in the area, the era of pornography. More money than any other business on the internet, the pornographic websites. And it has trained men, especially men, to view women as sexual objects. To think that it is right for them to control and hold power over them for their own purposes. And we see that when the stories come out. Like we kind of know better in one way, but then we don't. And the stories come out about uh, how powerful men had treated their assistants or, or, or workers or the women under their employ. I, just recently I saw an article about a, a certain former mayor of New York City and the accusations that, of her assistant that he, he, he treated her like a piece of meat. That is what the world trains us to do. Men, it is not to be amongst God's people. That, that is not what God wants for us. Among the people of God, among the followers of Jesus, it should not be that way. Job 31.1 says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Men, do you need to repent over the images you've put in your head? Men, do you need to have your, your, your mind washed clean by the Holy Spirit? Maybe we all need to invite God's Holy Spirit to come and, and retrain our mind, to, to cleanse us of the images we've put there through our, our, our use of, of media and TVs and movies. And we, we, need, to, we need help. First Timothy 5.2, here's the call that, that Christ places on men and how they think of and see the women in their life. It says, treat older women as if they were your mothers. Treat younger women as if they were your sisters. Be completely pure in the way you treat them. Let's ask God himself, the Holy Spirit, to tra- retrain our mind so that we see women and treat them in the purity of, of mothers and sisters and follow the call that, that God has placed upon us. Moving on. Now I'm speaking to everyone again. All of this, I believe, is a manifestation of the curse of sin. We looked at last week what, what God said would happen when, and speaking to Eve, what, what would happen now that sin has been unleashed. It says, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Last week we talked about how God's design was that, that men and women would be partners in the work God had for them. They'd be partners together to bear the image of God in the world. They'd be partners together to bring order to creation. They'd be partners to be fruitful and multiply. But because of the curse of sin, all of that would, would, would everything would be difficult. It'd be more difficult to grow crops. It'd be more difficult to bear children. And because of sin, there'd be a competition for power, and men would use their greater physical strength and aggression to win that battle. And so what do we see? If you, if you start from Genesis 3 and just move forward, you see right away 
uh, in fact, the next chapter, one man uses his strength and aggression to murder his brother. Cain kills Abel. And, and soon after that, a descendant of Cain uh, named Lamech, he's the first one to say, uh, it's not just one woman, I need two, two wives, two women to serve my needs. Now, some of you have heard me do this before, so I'm going to put it to you right now. Should I do the Lamech voice? If you, for those of you here, should I do it or should not? Mitch, you've overplayed that one. <laughs> Melissa says do it. All right. Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. You wives of Lamak, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Thank you. All right. But seriously, look what he's doing. He's commanding them. He's demanding. He's threatening violence. He demands that two, two wives to serve him. That is not what God intended. The Bible is describing, but it's not endorsing what's going on here. And you see that throughout the entire scriptures. God described what Abraham did in regards to Hagar, but does not endorse the way he treated her. And you see, uh, this is the, the overall thing, you see the reason why women, men compete for power and women have endured oppression and secondary status in society because of the sin that operates in the hearts of fallen people. Both men and women are fallen. And so there's this battle. And so instead of living the way God called us to, we instead fight and go against it. We end up following the culture of the world and the patterns that this world said. So in the Ten Commandments, God says, honor your father and your mother. Right? That's clearly in the Ten Commandments. That, that there shows it's, it's not, um, it is a God-instituted document. Because in the rest of the world, it was just God, just honor your father. The rest of the world operated by patriarchy. But God said, honor your father and your mother. It envisioned a husband and wife, a man and woman, standing side by side together in the work God was calling them to do and living and following God's commands. But instead, the rest of the world put the, the father on top. I want to talk about Hellenism. Where did that come from? Well, Hellenism is the spread of Greek thought and culture. And it took place in between the Old and the New Testament. And Alexander the Great, you may know, uh, the, the Greek Macedonian brought by conquering all of Persia and all these other territories, brought and spread the Hellenistic culture and mindset all throughout the ancient Near East world. And the Greeks had an especially negative attitude, even amongst the ancient world, uh, a negative attitude towards the role of women. Um, they thought wives, they, they demanded their wives basically never even leave the house. They weren't supposed to, to talk with others. They, they run the household and be there for the men, and that's it. And you could see that in, in the scholarly things. It's, it's not just a... Um, I got this by listening to some of the secular histories of, of Greece and their, their attitudes. Last Sunday, I shared a quote from Aristotle. It says, As between the sexes, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior the male ruler, and the female subject. Let me give you another one. This is from Demosthenes, 4th century B.C. He's a Greek, Greek orator. Here's what he said. 
We have mistresses for our enjoyment, concubines to serve our needs, and wives to bear legitimate children. That captures the Hellenistic attitude. And the problem is, is that that attitude subsumed the culture and, and the, the people of God, the, the, the Jewish people, absorbed it. Uh, one Old Testament professor says that Hellenism messed with the minds of the Jewish people, of God's people. And so that they absorbed that same attitude and brought it with them. So that by the time you get to Josephus, who was a first century Jewish writer, a little after the time of Jesus, but he still reflects the, the attitude of the Jewish people, he, he says, a woman, it says, is inferior to a man in all respects, so let her obey, not that she may be abused, but that she may be ruled, for God has given power to the man. I would suggest that that's not scripture, that's absorbing the Hellenistic attitude of the time. Let me, let me demonstrate in a picture how Hellenism shaped the religious practices of the, the, the people of God in that time. Herod's temple. Now, I know it's probably hard to see, so I'll have to describe it somewhat, but I put it on the screen. This is the temple that was there in the time of Jesus. And in the floor plan of the temple, you will see that at the center is the, the holy place, and inside the holy place was the most holy place. This is where the priests would go and for their purposes. Outside that was kind of the, the main uh, area, uh, the, the court there where they had the altar and the sacrifices. And then outside of that would be the court of the women. So if you could see that. So that's outside of the temple proper. So the women were relegated outside the temple. The men could go in and bring the sacrifice. Then even further out was the court of the Gentiles. So that is the temple that existed in the time of Jesus. That's how the worship for, for the God's people worked. Think about what that communicated. A woman could not go and bring her sacrifice into the temple area. She had to have her husband or some other man do it for her. She did not have access to go where the menfolk would go. And neither could foreigners, the Gentiles. They couldn't go in even close. Yeah, they could see the temple and see the building and maybe get a little feel for it. They could do a little tourism. Oh, what a beautiful temple. But they could not go and actually experience God's presence. That was the temple built by Herod, who, uh, well... You might know the name from the Christmas story. He's the one that killed the baby, so not a good guy. But he was trying to curry favor with the Jews, and he was fully indoctrinated into the, the Hellenistic mindset of his time. Now let me show you the original floor plan, uh, that of Solomon's temple. Now again, I, I realize hard to see. Maybe I'll try to post these on, on our Facebook page later. Um, but... Much simpler, you have the holy place and the most holy place in the center. That's that, that middle uh, rectangle. And then outside of that is the altar. And then you have various chambers and buildings. But there's no courtyard for the women or courtyard for the Gentiles. Solomon's temple was based on the tabernacle whose design was given by God himself. So in other words... In God's design, 
There is no separate place for the women or for foreigners. They could go anywhere a normal Israelite could go. Now, only the priest could go inside the holy place, and only the high priest can go in the most holy place. But a woman or a foreigner who wanted to worship the Lord Almighty could come and worship God, and they could go anywhere a man could go. That was God's design. Herod's temple was man's design. God never blesses Herod's temple. So, in 2 Chronicles 7, it talks about when the temple of Solomon was built and how fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering, and it says, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So God's presence dwelt amidst his people in that temple. And again, a woman and man could have access to God through it. God's presence was in their midst. And later, Ezekiel the, the prophet sees God's presence depart from that temple. They had started to worship other gods in that temple. And so the presence departed, the temple was destroyed. After the exile, the Jewish people rebuilt the temple. And then it was that rebuilt temple that later Herod, re, you know, did some big building plans and made that kind of smaller temple into something magnificent and glorious. But, but we never have a record in Scripture of God's presence dwelling in Herod's temple. In fact, Acts 7.48 says, God does not live, dwell in buildings built by human hands. See, God's temple would enter, or God's presence would enter the temple of Herod, but in a completely different way. Not by the glory of the Lord falling on it, but, it would, but by the incarnate Son of God would himself walk into Herod's temple. And you know what he did? Overturned the temples, kicked out the animals. And what was his verdict on that temple built by men? He says, this was supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations, for all peoples. You made it a den of robbers. This is not a place to find God. Here's the point why I'm sharing all this. While men, the religious and, and secular leaders, did not see women or the foreigners or the poor, did not create a way that they could have access to God. They only kept it for the privileged few, right? They... They, they made the rule under their rules, and that's how they set it up. But we have a God who sees. A God who, who's not like that. that. God was misportrayed by the religious leaders of his time as shutting out women from his presence. But we know that God is a God who sees. There's, there's a phrase in the Old Testament. God is no respecter of persons. Have you heard that? God is no respecter of persons. Another way to translate that is say, God does not show partiality. I think Galatians 3 captures that idea when it says, for as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. In other words, God is, is accessible to men and women, Jews and Greeks, foreigners, Whatever your social status, God is not a respecter of persons. 
uh, the word of God showed that, that God is a God who sees the Hagars of this world. And through Christ, he includes them into the kingdom of God, into the people of God. And Jesus himself shows us that he would see the people no one else saw. Just one quick story. There's a woman who had been, been ill for 12 years, had spent all her money on doctors, and none of them could help her. She had a condition of bleeding. Let's just say it would be an issue that, that men would not think about or have concern for. And in fact, the culture of her time would declare her unclean for that, that illness, unfit to be amidst a society. And in, in the midst of this illness, she heard about this, this teacher, this man, and people were being healed, and she became convinced that he was sent by God. And if I could just touch him, I would be healed. She had no other hope, but she put her hope in this man. And so, so she entered that crowd being as inconspicuous. She didn't want to be seen because she was not, a, they would have said it wasn't appropriate that for her to be there. So she sneaks into the crowd um, not wanting anyone to see her, but she comes up and it's a huge crowd. It's packed tight. And she manages to get to where Jesus is and, and reach out and touch his cloak. And God saw. And it says as soon as he touched his cloak, she could feel the power of God, the power of the Spirit come upon her and heal her completely. She could feel it. She knew it. No one could see it. Jesus also felt that power. And so in the midst of walking through the crowd, he stops and he says, who touched me? Right? Who did it? And he looks around till he makes eye contact with this woman. And when, when they make eye contact, it says, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She's afraid he's going to be mad that she stole something. And, and, and she comes in and says, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your, your disease. You, you see what Jesus, he stops to listen. He could have kept going. She was healed already. But he stops to listen to her story. She tells him her whole story. Can't you imagine him saying, where have you come from? And where are you going? Right? And then he blesses the woman. Praises her. It's, it's your faith. It's your faith that, that led to your healing. Go in peace, daughter. Two things to, to close with. Have you ever wondered if God sees you? If anyone knows what's going on in your life? Have you ever been in one of those spots where like, does, does anyone know? Does anyone care what's going on? Don't we all have times where it feels like nothing, no one cares, and, and I don't know what to do? Look to the Savior. He sees. He knows. We have a God who sees and who cares what's going on. The second application I want us to think about is what, what can this mean for us? We who, who know the Lord know that he, he sees us, and it can give us a confidence to see others 
to not be so consumed with our own insecurity and wondering, is anyone taking notice of me, that we actually can be, notice others. One of, the, one of the more significant things I remember, it's been 30 years now almost, I think, when I was first on Young Life staff in ministry, we were having a staff meeting in the uh, Zanesville Holodome. I, I remember where it's at, the hotel we were at. And so there, uh, all of us were entering the, the big staff meeting, and there's a lot of young guys were young, and some girls. We were all in there like our 20s. And so we were all entering this thing, and everyone's kind of looking around, and, and the, the, the head guy, Rob Crocker, I always remember Rob Crocker said, hey, I want to point out something to you. He says, every one of you walked in this room hoping someone would, would welcome you and greet you, hoping someone would notice you and, and invite you in, right? And what did Rob say? What if we were the kind of people who noticed others and invited them in? People of God, what if we, because we know God notices us and sees us, what if then that gave us the ability to notice the people around us, to greet, to welcome, to listen to their stories? Let me pray. God and Father, I thank you that you, you see us. When no one else takes notice, you know right where we're at. You know where, we, where we've come from and you know where we're going. And you, you speak to us in the midst of that. And Father, if anyone's here and really struggling right now, Lord, I just pray that they would sense your presence and know your, that you see them. And Father, I pray that we as a church would be such that we notice the people around us, that we communicate your love and grace, that we're willing to listen to their story and and show your love. Help us do that. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.